you'll remember that we're in the second half of the series. Uh, the first half was focusing on uh, Joseph, but the second half is focusing more on uh, Joseph's brothers. And remember that these brothers were murderously violent. Uh, they were sexually out of control. They were brazenly defiant of their father, and they were totally untrustworthy. We've been over that a few times. And so the big question that we're kind of looking at as we go through the second half of the series is how on earth can people like that possibly enter into God's blessing? How can they be blessed by God, and how can the nations of the world be blessed through them? Uh, You'll remember from the story from Abraham uh, that we looked at last year, if you were here, that God had promised Abraham, I will bless you, and through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. There was Abraham, he had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and now we've got these guys. How on earth are they going to be this blessed bunch who are going to bless the whole world? And we saw last week that the way that it starts, the way that they begin this entering into blessing is through the awakening of the conscience and through conviction of their sins. Can you remember how God did that last time? Through the disturbing of the peace, there was this famine in the land where they couldn't find food. Uh, He did it through arousing the memory. Remember, they had to take a walk down memory lane and walk down to Egypt, the path that they had betrayed their brother with. Uh, God awakened their conscience through uh, speaking harshly to them, remember, through Joseph, who uh, accused them of being spies and said that their intent was evil. And then then finally, we saw uh, God awaken their conscience uh, through showing kindness to them. Remember, he gave them all these gifts for their journey back to their father. Uh, and remember that though when they found this gift, they found this money in their sacks, they, they didn't know what to make of it. They were afraid. In verse 28 of last chapter, we heard them say, what is this that God has done to us? So they don't know what to make of it because they've just been convicted of their sins and they realize what kind of terrible thing they've done and this punishment that they deserve, but then they have this lavishing of, of kindness on them in their sacks with this money and they're just confused. What, what is this that God has done to us? And we saw that, uh, there were, uh, that God's kindness, remember, leads us to repentance. That's what Paul says in Romans 2. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And this is what we see in the story today. Again, we see uh, what we're going to see is is God's kindness leading these uh, wicked brothers to repentance. And we're going to see how the warm radiance of God's grace is able to melt even the ice-cold, stony hearts of these wicked brothers. God's kindness leads us to repentance. And so I hope you'll keep it in front of you. And what we're going to look at as we go through this story is, firstly, I want you to see the reluctance of Jacob. Uh, Then we're going to look at the kindness of Joseph. And finally, we're going to look at the identity of Joseph. So, So let's start, shall we, looking at the reluctance of Jacob as we kick it off. Because remember that Joseph has Simeon locked up back in Egypt. And all the brothers have gone home. But the price of his freedom, the price of Simeon's freedom is that Benjamin be brought, this beloved son of Jacob, be brought back to Joseph. But Joseph and Benjamin, you'll realize, were dearly loved and highly favored by their father because these are the two sons of of Rachel, who was Jacob's preferred wife. Remember, all the others were sons of Leah, who uh, Jacob had been tricked into marrying. 
and that was a con. He'd been conned into marrying Leah, and, and all the other brothers were the sons of Leah, but his dearly beloved sons were, ben, were Benjamin and Joseph. And so Benjamin was a lot like Joseph. He was dearly loved and highly favoured also by his father. Now remember that Joseph's brothers hated and despised Joseph because he was loved and favoured by his father. And things did not go very well for Joseph because he was loved and favoured by his father. He was thrown into a pit and sold as a slave. And so what's to say that if Jacob hands over Benjamin who is also highly loved and dearly favoured, that these wicked brothers won't do exactly the same thing that they did to Joseph. You can begin to see the reluctance of Jacob in this situation. And it's worth noting that our God has a son who is also dearly loved and highly favoured, and that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, there are moments throughout the Old Testament where we're given a little glimpse into what it must have been like for God to give his dearly beloved son and send him on a dangerous journey knowing exactly how he would be treated by his brothers when he got there. You see, one of those snapshots in the Old Testament is when Abraham offered his son Isaac his dearly loved son Isaac, on the altar. But we see it here by way of contrast in the reluctance of Jacob to give his son because he feared how his son Benjamin would be treated. And so now Benjamin is the brother on whom all their hopes depend. Because if Benjamin doesn't go down to Egypt, Simeon will stay languishing in prison for the rest of his life. They won't get any food from Egypt to bring back, and so they'll all die of starvation. Benjamin is now the brother on whom all their hopes depend. And so the brothers go to their father, Jacob, and they they say, Dad, this is what it'll cost. This is the price of redemption. This is the price of salvation that you should give your dearly beloved son, Benjamin, and let us take him down to Egypt. And Jacob says, Not in a million years will I give you my dearly loved son. Because the last time I sent my son to go with you guys, I never saw him again. And so it is over my dead body that I will give you my dearly beloved son. But then Judah steps forward and he says, but dad, it's the only way. Otherwise, we'll all die of salvation and Simeon will stay languishing in prison forever and all God's promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to you, Jacob, will die with us. You'll die, we'll die, and our children will die with us. Lord, Jacob, if there was any other way, Father, if there was any other way, we'd do it. But this is the only way in which all the people can be saved. If you send your dearly beloved son to go with us down to Egypt on a dangerous journey. But Jacob says no. And so we see that they reach this kind of stalemate where uh, Jacob has said no, even though he knows what the stakes are, he says no until uh, this stalemate must have gone on for a very long time. In verse 10, Judah says, if we hadn't delayed, we would have returned twice by now. 
And so I... I want you to see in this story what a contrast there is with, between their father Jacob and our father God. Aren't you glad that God is a much better father than Jacob? As it says in Romans 8, who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. And in light of that, how much more will he not also along with him give us all things? So I want you to see as we look at the reluctance of Jacob, I want you to see by way of contrast the richness of God's kindness that he's lavished upon us in sending the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Can you see what a difference that makes to his children? If you really believe that, if you really take that richness and that kindness to heart, can you see how that leads you to having a peace that surpasses all understanding, when you see the lavishness of God's kindness to us in giving us his son. As it says in in 1 John 4, perfect love casts out all fear. And so may God give us grace to take his kindness in giving us his son to heart this morning. But Jacob won't do it. He won't give his son. And so it all reaches a tipping point in verse 15 when Jacob realizes if he won't send his son, then they're all going to die and God's promises with them. And so in the second half of verse 15, it says, they went on their way down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And of course, that was with this beloved son, Benjamin, this time. And so there's quite a contrast between their first visit to Joseph, where Joseph spoke to them harshly and they had a very difficult time, and their second visit now, where it's nothing but kindness and tenderness and love. And the key difference between the first visit and the second visit is the fact that they brought Benjamin, this beloved son, with them. You see, it says it in verse 16. It all starts off the kindness. Have a look. When Joseph saw Benjamin was with them, what a difference it makes to bring the beloved son with you as you come before the king. And so because they brought the beloved son, I want you to see these four snapshots of kindness that this king, the man, lavishes upon the brothers. And the first is in uh, the welcome that they receive in verse 16. Have a look. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready for the men are to dine with me at noon. So the reason they've been brought into the house, we'll see, is so that Joseph can throw a banquet, so that he can dine with them. But, but they don't know that. Imagine rocking up in Egypt and the prime minister wants you to go straight to, the, to their house. And they're thinking to themselves, what on earth is going on here? What did we do to deserve to be brought into the prime minister's house? And so once again, we see this incredible disconnect between the kindness that Joseph intends and the evil that the brothers expect. The brothers think that the prime minister must be hatching some kind of cunning plan in order to deceive them into a trap and then ultimately to destroy them. That's what we see they say. And doesn't that sound exactly like what the brothers did back in chapter 34 
with the Shechemites. Can you remember that story? Where they pretended to be friendly with the Shechemites. And they said, yes, let's enter into a partnership together and a friendship together. Oh, on one condition that you all get circumcised. Yes, yes, let's be friends. You men, you all just need to get circumcised and then we'll be friends with you. And while they were defenseless and while they were still in pain, what did they do? It was a trap. They slaughtered them. Now they think that's what this man is doing, this prime minister of Egypt. And so the way they think they're going to be treated by Joseph is just a reflection of how they've treated other people themselves, how they treated the Shechemites. And we saw last week that that's exactly what we do with God. We project our thoughts onto his thoughts. We think he's like us, but we reminded ourselves last week from Isaiah 55 that God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. And yet here they are projecting their own evil intentions onto Joseph who wants to show them kindness. But the brothers still don't get it in verse 19. And so they go on the offensive and they try to explain themselves to the steward before this disaster falls upon them. And they go to the steward and they say, you know, last time we we were here and we were down here to buy grain and we bought the grain and we put it in our sacks. We paid for everything. But when we got back, there was the money in our sacks. And and we just want to say, we don't know how it got there. We, we, we didn't put it there. We thought we'd paid for it. And, and so, look, we've brought back the money that we used to pay for it. And, and we brought back extra money so we can buy extra food. They're terrified. And that's where we see the second snapshot of God's kindness. The second snapshot of God's kindness is in these words of assurance that we see in verse 23. The steward says to them, rest assured. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put the treasure in your sacks. I received your money. And so not only now do the brothers feel that God must be up to something, but now even the steward can see that God must be up to something. Can you see what a stark contrast, however, there is between what the brothers thought God was up to in the last chapter, where God must be trying to punish them, and and, and what they think God is doing, and now what the steward can see that God is doing. Because the brothers thought God was out to punish them, but the steward can see God is out to do what? To bless them. How ironic. And the key word that the steward uses in verse 23 is a very important word because in Hebrew it's the word shalom. Peace. Rest assured. Do not be afraid. It's a beautiful word. I think it's the most important word in our story today because this is a story about making peace. It comes up four times actually in our story today. Shalom. This is what Joseph wants for his brothers and and this is what God wants for these wicked brothers. He's seeking their peace. He he wants them to be at peace with God and, and with their brothers. God is seeking their peace. After all the violence, after all the sexual promiscuity, after all the family dysfunction and bitter rivalry, after their deception. God is working for peace between these brothers. This is a story about making peace. 
You know, there's a point in our service every Sunday after we confess our sins where we hear words of assurance and then we pass the peace. Essentially, we're saying to each other, Shalom. The peace of the Lord be always with you. Peace. Rest assured. Do not be afraid. And you know what? For a long time, I must have to say, I fear that when we hear these words, we're just like the brothers. And that we find those words of assurance so very hard to believe. So may God in his mercy allow us to hear those words like never before today. Shalom, peace, rest assured, do not be afraid, see my heart, see the kindness, see what I've done for you. Well, it's not just empty words in verse 23, because we see then that the steward brought Simeon out to them. And so this is the third snapshot of the kindness that we see, the release of Simeon. And what a relief that must have been for the brothers to see Simeon. And more so, what a relief it must have been for Simeon to be released from jail. Can you imagine his relief? You see, back in Verse 18, they were terrified that this man was going to actually make them his slaves. But on the contrary, what has happened is that they've released the slave, Simeon. But just imagine the conversation they might have had for a second, starting with Simeon. Guys, what took you so long? I thought you'd never come. You see, Simeon has had plenty of time to mull over the fact that he and his brothers once sold their brother as a slave. And it's been 20 years that he's been languishing as a slave down in Egypt. And after 20 years, none of his brothers came to seek him out. None of his brothers came searching for this brother who they'd sold as a slave. And now Simeon is a slave who's been left by all of his brothers. And he must have been thinking there, sitting there, thinking and praying and hoping, my goodness, I hope there's been a change in my brother's. My goodness, I hope they've had a change of heart because if there hasn't been a work of grace and a work of God and a work of transformation in their hearts and I'm going to sit here to rot in jail for the rest of my life, I hope there's been a change. Can you imagine the relief when he saw them? Because there had been a change. There has been a work of grace in these wicked brothers. Through the conviction of sin and the awakening of conscience, there's been a transformation and there's been a change. And while we're on that point, I want you to see that there's also been a remarkable change in Judah. Back in verse 9, when he says to his dad, I myself will be surety for Benjamin. I'll be a pledge. You can hold me accountable for him. If I do not bring Benjamin back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. What a stark contrast that is to the last time Judah made a pledge in order to get something in return. Can you remember the last time he made a pledge in order to get something in return? The promiscuous patriarch, that sordid story in chapter 38 where he pledged the equivalent of his wallet and his keys and his photo ID in exchange for the body of a prostitute? 
And as it turned out, this woman that he had taken advantage of was his daughter-in-law, a helpless widow who he had supposed to have been taken care of. But now, by stark contrast, he's willing to pledge himself in order to take care of his little brother. When it came to selling Joseph, can you remember when it came to selling Joseph, when the the Ishmaelite traders came by, he was willing to take a bag of silver in order to betray him. But now when it comes to his brother Benjamin, he's willing to pledge himself in order to protect him and to save him. What what an amazing contrast there's been. Also through the awakening of Judah's conscience and the conviction of his sin. What a stark contrast between those two pledges. And so we see the amazing grace of God at work in the lives of wicked people. And surely we must stop and look at this and think, well, there must be hope for me. When I look at the sins of my own life and the, the besetting sins that I haven't been able to shake off, there must still be hope for me. And surely this fills us with hope and this should invoke in us prayerfulness. God, do it again. Do it in me. For he who began a good work in me will carry it on to completion. Surely that's what we're seeing in this story. There has been a change in these brothers. So Simeon's released, but the party's just begun because the fourth act of kindness we see is in this wonderful banquet at the end of the story. And And I don't know, but when I first read it, I couldn't help but think of the story of the prodigal son. When the father sees his son come home, he says, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. And then what does he say? He says, kill the fattened calf. Let's feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was lost and now he's found. And Joseph, when he sees his brothers, slaughters this animal. And we get this great picture in verse 34 at the the very last line of the story where they eat and are merry and they are joyful and it's a picture of the peace that God wants to bring between these brothers and it's a picture of the peace that God wants to bring between but for all humankind this is a story about making peace it's a picture of what we'll be in the new creation at the wedding supper of the lamb so they drank and were merry with Joseph But the peace isn't quite complete yet because did you notice this weird detail where they all sat at three different tables? Joseph sat on his own and the Egyptians sat on their own and the brothers sat on their own. That's to say that actually peace is not complete yet. But the stage has been set. The stage has been set for peace and reconciliation through the awakening of the conscience and through all these lavish acts of kindness. The stage has been set for a full reconciliation and peace. Shalom. But now I want us to look at the identity of Joseph because it's really important and it points us to the identity of the Lord Jesus. It's a very clear dynamic in the story. And if we ask the question in this story, who is Joseph? Who is he? I want you to see three things because firstly, Joseph is the ruler who knows who they are, even if they don't know who he is. They've got no idea who he is. But he's the ruler who knows who they are. And he knows about their shady past. He knows about the crimes that they've committed against him. He's the ruler who knows who they are. In fact, we get this remarkable scene in verse 33 where he knows them so well, this man, this stranger, that he's able to 
organized their seating arrangements at the party for exactly from 11 brothers, from the youngest all the way through to the oldest. That's how well he knows them. And when he, they see it, verse 33, they look at each other and it says they looked at one another in amazement. And they're thinking to themselves, well, we don't know who this guy is, but he certainly seems to know an awful lot about us. Joseph is the ruler who knows them, even if they don't know him yet. I want you to see that Joseph is also the brother who loves them, even if they don't love him yet. Because you notice in the story how it keeps on saying the man, they keep on saying the man, the man, the man. They don't know who he is. Seven times we see him say, them saying the man, the man, the man. And it's kind of like in the same way today, people might refer to God as the man upstairs or they might say, oh my God, these brothers don't realize that the man they're referring to is the ruler who knows everything about them and he's their brother who loves them. That's who this man is. He's a brother who loves them, even if they don't love him yet. And thirdly, I want you to see that Joseph is the victim who is ready to forgive them, even if they're not asking for forgiveness. Can you imagine how terrifying it would be for them to finally see that This prime minister, this most powerful man, is their victim, is their brother, whom they betrayed, whom they threw into a pit. How terrifying for them to see that this is the victim. And yet we know from the story and from the kindness that he shows that he's the victim who's ready to forgive them, even if they're not asking for forgiveness. And so in all these ways, I want you to see how Joseph is pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ because so much more than Joseph, he is the ruler who knows everything about us. He is the brother who loves us and he is the victim who is ready to forgive. Jesus is the ruler who knows us and knows everything about us. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows it all in all the warts and every last detail. And he says that one day we're going to have to give an account to him as our judge. Everything that we've done for our whole lives, we're going to have to give an account to the ruler who knows everything about us. And that would be a very terrible thought if we didn't also know that he was our brother who loves us. He's our brother who loves us. And the king of kings and the ruler became born as a baby and became our brother. And it says in Hebrews that he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. And so it will be more than enough for us to come before the king and to have the king show you kindness if you come with him with this brother who loves you. Because he's not just the brother who loves you, but he's also dearly loved and highly favored by the king. He's the brother who loves us. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the victim who's ready to forgive. Because what happened to him? The ruler became our brother in being born as flesh. And he, our brother became crucified on the cross to pay for all of our sins. It was our sins that nailed him there. And he died for our sins on the cross as our victim. Because it was us who put him there. And we said to him, 
this man is wicked and he was hated and despised by his brothers. And he was condemned as a criminal. But God said, no, this is my son and he is dearly loved and highly favored. And so God raised him from the dead saying, no, he is my beloved son. And now he's seated at the right hand of God, isn't he? And he stretches out his hands to offer forgiveness to all who would come to him. And he wants to make peace with all who would bow down before him and acknowledge their sin before him. But that's not all. And this is where we'll finish. Later on in the service, we'll remember that he's prepared a table for us so that we can dine with him. And he wants to satisfy us with the richest of fare. This is what we remember as we gather around the Lord's table. And so just like the brothers in, in verse 34 that we see, he has prepared a table so that we may eat and be merry with him. And one day we'll do that in perfect peace forever and ever. Sit down with our ruler who knows us and our brother who loves us. Can I get an Amen. Amen.